you are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Good to see everybody this morning. So, uh, hey, and if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, good morning to you too. Man, we've got a good crowd here. I'm excited. I sure would like to see you folks out there in TV land. Just continue to filter back in. I love it when the room's big and full. Hey, if you don't know much about us, or maybe you're a visitor or you're watching for the first time on YouTube, let me tell you a couple things about us. We are a church for the city. Uh, making much about the name of Jesus Christ. And we do that in four specific ways which we hold dear as our some of our core values. And first is that we love everyone always. And we also give more than makes sense. And then we chase after the likeness of Jesus in every corner of our lives, every area. And lastly, that we anchor all of that in the unchanging truth of God's Word. And that's how we hope to let to be the foundation for everything we teach and everything we do and every ministry we have. So that's a little bit about us. Um, one quick announcement before we just jump right in is that uh, next, two weeks from now, so not next Sunday, two Sundays from now, we are firing our children's ministry back up. It's been on a big hiatus from this uh, pandemic of the virus, and so we're going to do that. We've taken a lot of safety measures. We've arranged things differently, and we're going to do one more safety measure to make sure we have enough people and enough supplies and things. So one of the things that's going to require is that you register ahead of time. So if you're already sort of in the system, you've been bringing your kids and your kids are in the computer, you've logged in before, we've got that database, we're going to be sending out a big like mass text to everybody, which should give you either a link to or the specific instructions on how that registration works. The other option, particularly if you haven't brought your kids in, you're not in the system, is you can go to our Facebook page. So just do a search for Life Community on Facebook. And on that Facebook page, there'll be instructions on how you can register for class for your kids. So we need to do that so we can maintain all the standards we're trying to maintain. So I'm excited. We're going to get the kids back in and get the poor back into them with some, uh, some scripture and some learning about who our Jesus is. So I'm excited about that. Um, okay, so we're going to jump back in. We have been in our series, obviously, for a while now about, we're calling it Set Apart. And those aren't the kind of words we use in our culture today, really set apart. What does that mean? Um, what we really are talking about is how God chose to have his people, and this was done before Jesus, this is back in ancient times, God chose to have his people live a particular way that would be distinguishable from the rest of the world because it would be infused with the character and the nature of God. And so he had very specific things for them to do, and that's rolled through history and so forth. And then Jesus came, and, and what he really did was he exploded the idea and redefined, but not didn't change, it's the same message, but he redefined it in a way that helps us live today. And so we're going to be talking about this week specifically how we're set apart in victory. Now, the, if you're a church person, the first thing you think of when you hear set apart in victory, we're talking about that, that you, you go straight to, well, we're set apart because we're freed by Christ because of what he did on the cross, and that's true. That's not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about today is what is a victory in our lives, living today, in this place, at this time, in our day-to-day lives, 
And how is that different from how the world walks in their victory? What is a victory for the world? And we're going to contrast those two, and we're going to bring it all together, hopefully, um, in something that, that brings us this great unity. And then we're going to share communion together, kind of to seal that idea of this oneness. So that's where we're going today. Um, and, and quite frankly, when we submit our lives, and when we, when we say we're going to be set apart, and we live according to the way God wants us to be set apart, right? It should look different than the rest of our culture. It should be different. I mean, there should be something that's transformed so that the world, and when I say the world, I mean those that don't follow Jesus. When, when that culture sees us, they kind of turn their head a little bit. Like, that's, that's just a little different. Not bad different, but it might actually be appealing to them. But they'll see something different. And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean different on Sunday. Okay? First of all, I would submit to you, and I would make the argument that we don't look very much different than the rest of the world on Sunday. We really don't. I would say there are churches filled with people every Sunday of people that are just trying to be good people, and they think that good people go to church, and they don't really follow Jesus. They don't really have an encounter with the Savior that died for them, that bled for them, that paid for their very life. But they come to church anyway. And so when they, look at the, when they look at the church and they see everyone else at church, they just think we're all part of the same happy, we're just good people family. So we don't look that much different than the world on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, you get an opportunity to look different, to be set apart from the world. And it's stark. The contrast is stark when we start thinking about how you can live when you go to work, when you're with your family, when you're with your friends, what that looks like to the world. So in this life, this fallen, broken, corrupted world, uh, we see a different version of victory. So we're going to talk about what the world means when it says victory. Okay, so let's think about this. The, the world looks at victory, and I usually think of it as in terms of winning and losing. So there are winners and there are losers. Uh, and, and that's not, I mean, that's, that's the language we can, we can understand. We know what winning is, right? I mean, we know what a win looks like. I mean, any board game players out there? Anybody? Yeah, Chelsea, yeah! She's pretty excited. She's, a, she's always got energy. Um, so yeah, so board game, do you like it when you lose? No. Okay, I'll ask an Indiana question. Anybody play Euchre? Yeah! Okay, now I'm getting excited, right? Euchre players, how do you like it when you, use, when you lose a Euchre? If you're a Hoosier and you lose a, a Euchre, uh, sorry, I'll pray for your redemption. But No, and you know what I really hate? Here's what, here's what really bothers me. That couple you just taught to play Euchre kicks your butt in Euchre. You're like, uh, not, 10 to 2, you lose. I don't know how that happens, but it happens. And it doesn't sit right with us. We want to be the winner, right? And we don't just want to win. In the world, you don't just want... <clears throat> in the world, you don't just want to win. You want them to lose. Because in the world, winning is about the self. Bringing up the self. Raising up yourself. Somehow I'm better and they are less. They're diminished. They're put down. And that's how the world rolls with this. It's because we're fallen and corrupt. I mean, and everybody loves a winner, and even if you can't be involved in the win, you want to align yourself with a winner, right? I mean, hey, I root for college football teams on Saturdays in the fall. A moment of silence, because I'm going to be sad. We're not going to have that this fall. I root for college teams. I didn't play. I didn't go to that school. I don't even know anybody on the team, but I'm rooting for them because they're winners. There's a few teams I kind of root against. I'm just not going to go there. I'm looking at you, Alabama, Florida. Um, hey, and if you're an Alabama or Florida fan, I'll pray for your redemption too. It's okay. We love you. Um, 
No, but really, don't you think we're all drawn to want to be part of this winning thing? There's something in us, innate, about winning. And what do you think that says about us? Because I think it says this. We recognize that in us, there's something lacking. Just, we need to be in a higher place, a higher state, somehow lifted up or exalted, or at least made better, if you will. Uh, the dictionary, Merriam-Webster, their definition is this. Um, the overcoming of an enemy or an antagonist or an achievement of mastery or success in a struggle or endeavor against odds or difficulties. It sounds like uh, there's this conflict, like a spy thing. You know, I, I, we've been watching in our house, we've been watching the, uh, the Mission Impossible movies, catching up. But we did like all seven of them in a week. It was pretty cool. Uh, or six. So I guess there's seven kind of... Um, but there's always like this conflict, and then there's the overcomer, the guy that finishes on top, and everyone else is down below, and that's the way that rolls. So the world would see victory as an outward raising up of the self, while at the same time, an outward diminishing of someone else or some other group. This could be a business. This could be your community in your little neighborhood. It could be your church. Hey, our church has more attendance than your church. Whatever. We, we tend to do this in our culture, but it's to make something of the self. That's the point. The end goal of even going through the motions, whatever that battle is to get victory, the end goal of the battle itself in the world, in the world's plan, is to gain the benefit and the victory for the self. So let me ask you this. As followers of Jesus, should we follow that same pattern of what victory looks like? I mean, it's sort of rhetorical. You, I know you're like, you know the book answer, right? Well, no, we're not supposed to, right? But do we? I mean, is that to be the end goal? To, to win so that we can find ourselves in this victorious platform in, the, in the, you know, the top rung in the Olympics and all that? And I'm not saying those things are bad, but let's talk about what the goal is. Why are we, why are we achieving a victory? And what does a victory really look like for the person that's doing the battle part? I'm going to read from uh, Philippians this is in the first chapter of Philippians. This is Paul writing, and he writes, and he's talking about these great accomplishments that they're having, that they've made some great uh, advance. And um, as you read that, you're thinking, well, gosh, that's pretty cool. So uh, we're going to see, I want you to pay attention first of all. I'm going to read the first half of the passage, and we'll talk about it. And then we'll read the whole thing in its entirety, and it should come together. So during this first half, here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for what the result is. What's the, what's the goal? What's achieved through this victory that Paul's writing about? So this starts in the first chapter, beginning at verse 12. It says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. So wow, I mean, obviously this is a big thing, right? So as a church, we can celebrate that, right? God's kingdom is advancing. The, the word of the gospel is spreading. People are being changed and so forth. Now, by the world's definition, let's apply and see what we would expect his circumstance to be because of that. So obviously, he's either in some high position where he's been maybe, maybe even honored by the emperor or by the, by the leadership in Rome somehow. So he's placed in this position where people see him as, oh, he's important. And he, he's weighty. I, when he says something, I really need to listen because he's got, he's got this thing going on. Or maybe, or maybe if he were just spitballing, we'd say, maybe he's even been placed in a, in a position in the Roman leadership somehow. He was a Roman citizen. Maybe he's, you know, like the third level down from some regional director or something. Who knows? But because of that, he's in this position that when he speaks, people will take notice because he's important. 
because his words are weighty and lofty. And that's kind of what we would think, but let's, let's read and see what the rest of that passage can tell us, what Paul says is the reason that we're getting this victory. So starting at 12 again, I'll read that first part a second time, and then we'll go to the finish. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole impure guard and all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Wait, what? What? He's in prison? How, how is that a win? What kind of victory is that? I mean, that's just not going to fly in most circles. People are not going to be on the street going, oh yeah, Paul, leader of that one church over there, dude, he got thrown in jail. We should buy some confetti, have a parade. No, they're thinking lose. That's a losing proposition. But you see, in God's kingdom, and by Paul's understanding of God's kingdom, we see that, and this is his kingdom on earth, so I want to to clarify that, I'll talk about that later. In his kingdom on earth, winning is always sacrificial. Winning is always outward, not inward. The victor doesn't receive the benefit that was trying to be achieved. They aren't necessarily elevated in some way or improved in some way. Their position didn't have to get better for this to be a victory. As a matter of fact, many times in Scripture, uh, victory looks like a defeat. What looks like a total loss, God turns around to become a victory. See, the benefits of the winning go to others. Now, this doesn't mean God can't elevate or bless the victor. Doesn't mean you can't come out looking really good or be in a better position. But the point is that the reason and the goal you even fought the battle was not for yourself, but that others might be furthered in God's kingdom. That's how God describes what a victory should be. The ultimate goal is that others advance in his kingdom. And you might look at this example and go, yeah, okay, well, that's Paul. You know, Paul's a one off, right? He's the only guy like Paul. There's none other that really was like him. Um, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He didn't really start off. He didn't really walk with Jesus all those years. And so his example probably is isolated as this weird guy where it's upside down, where, yeah, he gets defeated, but it really turns into a victory and so forth. But I'm going to walk through some scripture and show you that that's just not the case. That this is a pattern we see over and over and over again in scripture. I'm just going to talk to, I'm not going to read the scripture. I'm going to tell you the stories. Uh, I, I encourage you to go look these up. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay. Let's, so let's look at some examples. Abraham. So God tells Abraham, I want you to go up this mountain, and when you get up there, I want you to sacrifice your son. Kill your only son as a sacrifice to me. And he says, okay, I'll do it. Okay? Now, he's trust, whether he's trusting God or not is really irrelevant. I want you to think of it this way. He's walking up the mountain, and he's got to be thinking, well, how am I going to convince Isaac that I'm doing this thing? What do I do? How do I tie him down? What do I do? So I'm sure he's not walking up the mountain thinking, well, this is a win. Oh, yeah, this is going to be great. And when he gets up there, he's got him tied. He's got him all, whatever the process is. He, he, he takes out his knife or dagger or whatever the instrument is, and he's, he's raising it and he's ready. And then God aborts the program and, and spares him and gives him a sacrifice. But when he's doing this, when he's doing this, you think he's thinking, oh, this is the win, baby. Even though he trusted God, I'm telling you, that doesn't look like a win. What about Joseph. Joseph, teenager, pretty cocky, savvy kid, smart, sharp, one of 12 brothers, 
right? He's out with his brothers, and because he's cocky and a little sassy, they decide they don't like him so much, they throw him in a pit as a teenager, and when a guy comes along from Egypt, they sell him to this guy as a slave. He gets hauled off to Egypt. He's in slavery in Egypt, but somehow, because he's this savvy guy and God's got his blessing on him, he raises up. He gets, he gets this higher position, higher position, and pretty soon you're thinking, yeah, now it's looking like a victory. Oh, no, he gets falsely accused and thrown in prison. That's not like a series of wins to anybody here. I mean, is anybody looking, anybody already kind of measuring the championship ring for Joseph based on that story? Because that looks like a total lose, right? How about uh, the descendants of Joseph later on? Because as the story rolls, and many of you may know the story, but as the story rolls, he manages to, to have his family come to Egypt, and they grow to this huge group of people that are enslaved for 400 years. And then they manage to escape slavery because God comes through and raises up Moses to do that. And when they do that, they screw up and they wander the desert for 40 more years. I'm sure every surrounding nation looked at Israel at that point and didn't say victor. They said, loser. Right? Anybody? Can I get an amen? What about Daniel? Daniel, he gets... Babylon comes, conquers Israel. They haul the people off to their own country. So Daniel's in exile in in Babylon. And uh, he's a savvy guy. He gets put in this high position, gets moved up, moved up, only to be falsely accused by his colleagues. And because of the way the laws work, he's sentenced to death by this creepy way where they throw you into a den of lions. And everybody gets to stand around and watch you get mauled and eaten by these lions. Uh, When? Anybody? Anybody voting for the win on that? What about uh, his call, his other people that were exiled? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've heard that story. We sing songs about him to our kids. That's a terrible story, man. These guys show up. They're trying to be honored, trying to honor God. The king of Babylon builds the idol. They said, nope, not going to bow to that. I got my own God, and he's the real deal. They said, fine, you're going to die. And in another creative way, they decided to throw these guys into an incinerator which they crank up to several times hotter than usual, and the guys running it die because of the extreme heat. And they get thrown in there. Um, win? Anyone? Anyone voting for the win on that? And then the craziest one of all, Jesus, his very self, comes to the earth, incarnate God, which he was trying to convince people without actually ever saying, I am God. He was doing God things. He was teaching God truth. He, he convinced 12 and really more than that, 120 or 300 people, that he was, in fact, this Messiah, that he was God, that he was one and the same, and yet different. And he had all these followers, but he gets betrayed. Now, this is, this is the creator of the universe, guys. He gets betrayed, beaten so badly that in Psalms, prophetically, they say he didn't even look human anymore. He gets hung on a cross with nails in the most horrific, painful way probably ever created to murder somebody. The crucifixion. He dies and they bury him. Um, win? Anyone voting for the win on that? Now, you guys probably all know um, that, because you know the end of the story on these, but be honest with me. If you didn't know how that story turned out, if you're reading the newspaper at the time those events are taking place and you see this is what happens, the next day after Jesus is buried, you're going to read the paper and you're going to think, oh, yeah, that's a win. Ah, that guy's a real winner. Absolutely not. Total and complete defeat in every one of these circumstances I just gave you. But let's see what God did through the supposed defeat. 
He approves of a man, Abraham. He, he, Abraham proves himself worthy, and God approves him to be the very beginning of the people, the bloodline that would go through all of eternity being God's chosen bloodline. They would grow, and all the way, you can trace it all the way to Jesus himself who redeemed the world. That, that's a victory. Oh, and uh, perhaps uh, Joseph, if you want to look at him again. So right there, he's in prison, right? He's there for several years, but he somehow, through crazy circumstances that God arranges, he gets out of prison, and again, he's exalted to this super high position. Because he's just, he's got God's favor. Well, just so happens he's in a position to save his family from sure destruction because they're over here dying of starvation because the whole region is struck with famine. They end up coming to him and he gives them food and he saves his own family through this horrible circumstance. That's a victory. Oh, and then after all those years of slavery and wandering in the desert, jo- God raises up Joshua, and Joshua takes us into the land that we're promised, and they conquer everyone to own and possess the land that becomes God's holy land, possessed by God's holy people, through which he's going to save the world. That's a victory. Daniel, huh? in the lion's den, right? Pretty, pretty rough circumstance. The next morning they come back, guess what? There he sits, untouched, angel present, lions are chill. They let him out. And because of the way that miracle happened, the king of Babylon declared that Yahweh God was supreme, that the God of Israel is the God. That's a victory. Oh, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, hmm, same thing. Right? People are watching in the fire. Somebody appears. Oh, uh, Jesus appears in the fire with them. They're not burned up. Their bindings get burned off. They walk out of the fire. They don't even smell like smoke. And because of that, thousands and thousands of Babylonians turn and worship the God of Israel. That's a victory. Jesus, three days in the tomb. All of a sudden, the tomb's rolled away. God raises him from the dead in this new transformed life, and he is defeating death and sin, both then and forever. And from that time, millions upon millions upon millions have been offered and granted the saving grace of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. That's the ultimate victory. What about Paul? So we started with Paul. Paul, first time he meets Jesus, doesn't look like a win. Gets knocked off his horse, made blind. I mean, if that's the story you're reading, doesn't look like a win, right? But he's so convinced and so thoroughly transformed by Christ, that his life changes, and he goes preaching the gospel, I mean zealously, so much that everywhere he goes, they hate him. He gets beat literally to death several times, I mean almost to the point of death. There's a story, I can't remember which, I'm not sure which story it is, so look this up, where they thought he was dead, they left him for dead, they thought he had died. He gets up, brushes off the dust, goes back into town and preaches Jesus again. He ends up in prison and the the story in Rome, he ends up getting martyred. They end up killing him. Still looks like a defeat, but let me tell you this. Because of the witness of his life, because of the witness of his testimony, because of the writings he wrote and the truth he revealed about Jesus, he has probably become the most influential human being in all existence for the cause of the Christ. Cause of Christ. Amen? That's a victory. They all look like total defeat, man. See, God turns it upside down. Now notice, with I started this little 
this little rant I went on here about these guys in the Bible. I started off by saying victory here on earth can sometimes look like defeat and then get turned into victory. But I'm going to tell you, uh, there'll be a time when God has his victory. Right? And that victory is going to look like a victory. It's going to be spectacular. He will have his victory. And nobody will say, well, that's a defeat. Everybody's going to be, whoa, total victory. Now, that time's coming, and I'm not talking about that today, but, but just know you don't have to think, oh my gosh, every time, if I'm going to get a win, it's got to be a defeat. No, not necessarily, right? There are times when, when victory looks like victory, but eventually it's always going to look like victory. I'm talking about living right now, today, when you go to work or when you go to your, to your lunch with your family or whatever you do, how's that victory looking now? So let's look at that. Let's look at what our lives are supposed to be shaped like as we walk in God's victory from day to day. I'm going to go to a prayer in John chapter 7 that Jesus was praying. Now this is in the upper room, so this would be that time we, we remember that the Lord's Supper happened there. But they spent a whole evening there. This is during the Passover festival, and they talked and they taught, and, they, and some of it was recorded. Only John records this prayer. Um, so I'm going to read part of this prayer. This is the latter part of the prayer. It's just this beautiful language, this beautiful picture that Jesus paints. And I want you to notice the, uh, the theme here. It's oneness. It's absolute perfect unity. So just listen for that. He says this. <clears throat> but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. And he's praying to God. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. All be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Now I know that's a lot of, it's almost hard to listen to it a little bit because we don't talk like that, but just think of the beauty of what he's saying here. He says, I am in you, Father, and, and you're in me, and, and they his followers, are in us. There's this unity, this oneness he's talking about that he desires for his people. So they talk about all these separate entities all through the, all through the passage, and yet seven times in this passage he says, they're in me and I'm in them and I'm in you and you're in me. 
One thing being in another. You see, God the Father and His Son are so closely bound that they are as one. And then Jesus says more than once in here that He's he's been given glory by God and that He has given us that glory so that we can be one. You see, with with this perfect love from God, it's interesting, Jesus is God's glory. Jesus is God's love because they are one. And the passage flows into this idea of what this love and unity talks about. Jesus says very interestingly in here, he says, he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the, uh, of the world. Now that's a phrase you see in Hebrew texts and the way the Jews used to think about it in their culture and used to use words, even in the Greek, um, it, it's, it's rendered that way. And you need to understand that phrase means, before, you know, before the foundation of the world, means this pre-existent God that was present when nothing else was present, when it was, there was no creation, Right? That's before the foundations of the world, before there was time. What was God doing? What was, that, what was happening with God during that time? He was loving. Jesus said, you loved me in that time. You see, you can't, a solo being, an in, a single entity can't love. Love must flow from one to one. Love must be received See, God was loving Jesus. God, in these three parts that we call the Trinity, which I'm not going to go into all that today, but there's these three parts we read about all through Scripture. God the Father, and then God either the Son or the Word, and then the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, They're separate, but not, because their unity is so close, so tight. Their love is so pure. God loves the Son. God loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves God and the Son. The Son loves the Spirit and God. It's this beautiful community of love. And wouldn't you know that if you go back and look at the garden when it was planted and we were put there, we were supposed to be this perfect unity with God, with each other, with his creation, so that we could carry out his perfect love. We could love the earth. That, and, that, and that means and God said have dominion over. But, he, but, but, he, but you could also say he, he's saying, go love my creation. You're in charge, go love my creation. As I've loved you, you love them. And then we blew it course, as usual. So since the fall, we've been trying to get back to that. And then Jesus comes and he goes, nope, you know what? I'm going to restore that. Now through Jesus, we have the opportunity to receive God's love the same way God loves the Son. Now the Son loves us and that love is given to us. For what purpose? So that we can give that love to others. We don't just get loved for ourselves. And this is the goal of victory on earth. Victory in this life is to love the way God loves. He's pray, he prayed specifically. We would have the same kind of love for each other that God had for him. Jesus talks, or I'm sorry, uh, John talks about this again in chapter uh, 13, no, uh, the third chapter of the gospel. Um, he says this, about this, this love. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. We're not talking about earthly love here. Okay? You can love your wife and not know God. 
You can love your brother and not know God. You can be good to your neighbor and love them in certain ways. You can be very outgoing and very giving and, very, and not know God. Because the only way we can give God's love is if we possess God's love. And we only possess God's love through what Jesus did on the cross for us. So that's what he's saying here. If you don't have that love in you, you don't know God. It's just that simple. And if you, if you display that kind of love, we know you know God. So I'm going to go on. Um, he says, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. How are we living? Not of our own self. It's, it's, it's through him that we get to live. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us that way, we ought to also love one another in the same way. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now I'm going to back up and look at that phrase again. No one has seen God at any time, semicolon. Then there's another, another sort of uh, uh, sentence, right? And when you see that, this, is gonna, this second part of this is going to refer back to the first part. That's how that, that grammar works. So, so he says, no one has seen the Father, right? But then he says, um, but uh, his, uh, I want to make sure I get it right. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So if we love one another in God's kind of love, when people see us, they do see God, even though it's not directly. See, they see God in us. That's, that's the point of that little phrase. And he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. And there's the third part of the Trinity brought in right there. So, that, so this is the big take home. Here's the big take home, guys. The big, if you get nothing else, remember these. For followers of Jesus, victory is defined by our love, not our circumstances. Victory is defined only by our love and not by our circumstances. See, victory is love. Love is victory. And, and the cool thing about that is it can't be defeated. It can't be taken from you. It can't be put brushed aside. You can love. See, the problem with the love of the world is that it's, troll, it's totally based on circumstances. It's based on circumstances. I love you if. The guy that cuts you off when you're trying to get to the stoplight or whatever, do you love him? The circumstance wouldn't dictate that the world would love him. He'd probably call you number one in the not-so-nice kind of way. But see, if we base our victory on our love, the love of God, the love of Jesus in us, then it doesn't matter because that, that is based on God who doesn't change. Circumstances have no effect on God and therefore it doesn't have any effect on his love, which is what we're supposed to be having flow from us if we say we follow him. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't have normal you know, joyful interactions with people, even non-believers. You can have a barbecue with your neighbor. You can, you can watch college football, again, sad. Um, and you can do all those things, and you can enjoy those things uh, and still be a lover the way God wants us to love. It doesn't say we're just these weird people. That's all we ever do. We still engage the world, and we still enjoy God's creation. But we only call it victory when God is glorified. When, when somehow others outside of ourselves are advanced in God's kingdom, that's a victory. 
See, when we were wrong, here's the victory. When we are wronged and we can declare our love rather than our outrage. If somebody does wrong to you and you, do, you can declare love rather than outrage, that's God's love. So the key points are this. Followers of Jesus, the victory is defined by our love, not our circumstances. And in this way, then, we are set apart in victory by our accepting and walking in God's definition of victory, which is love. That's the key. And it seems so simple. And it is if you'll simply submit and abide in him. Now, now I want to say something. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you get walked over all the time and you just, oh, I just love everybody. I don't care if they... That, I mean, Jesus showed examples where he stood up against oppression. What it means is this. You can seek justice without hatred. There's a newsflash for our current culture, right? You can seek justice without hatred. You can pray for the... Um, you can pray for your enemy in such a way that he is restored to God rather than that God would crush him. And that way we're set apart because we'll be known as these strange people. Jesus even gave this as a specific commandment. Uh, in John chapter 13, it says this. This is Jesus saying, a new commandment I give you. This is starting at 34. new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. How will the world know? By our love. Not by our preaching necessarily, not by any other thing. And love entails so much action, because love, if it's, if it's the love of God, it flows, because what was he doing before there was any of any of this? He was loving. The love, his love was flowing out. As a matter of fact, I, I firmly believe that creation itself, the, the the foundation of the earth and the, and the universe was all just a flowing out of God's love. He just, he just wanted to love. And all this was created. And then he wanted it to continue in his love. The victory in this life is walking in God's love. Now, I, I, I pray that God teaches me more and more how to love with his love. Um, because Loving the way God loves is my victory. Loving the way God's love, God loves is your victory. And here's the crazy thing about, about doing that. It really confuses the world. But it also draws them in because it's so appealing. They're like, how can you possibly love in this situation? How can you? And the answer is, well, I can't. But God loves through me. Because I have God's love in me, so I don't have to worry about it. Because God's love can flow. Because my love, it would not be flowing right now. That's how. But it draws them in. They're like, they're so curious. But they're confused because the world only loves in a way that causes them to be raised up personally. I love what Joseph said when his brothers, and I remember the story of Joseph I was kind of going through earlier. When, when the family does finally come during this famine, and, and they finally kind of figure out who he is, and he, he tells them, hey, I'm the brother you threw in prison, you know, you sold as a slave 20 plus years ago, and they didn't recognize him, and then they were like, oh, and they felt horrible, like, oh, great, he's like the second in command in Egypt, we're all going to lose our heads, you know, again, not a win, um, but what he does, he says this, he says, well, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Victory! See, we, you can't you can't run away from God's eternal 
uh, dominance over all things. It can't be destroyed. So we're supposed to be this community of love, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are a community of love. That's supposed to be how we roll. And if we just rest in Him, it'll just happen. You won't have to work. It'll just happen if we abide in Him and He in us. So we're going we're gonna to take an opportunity. So did everybody pick up your little cup in your, on your way? If you don't have one, uh, raise your hand. Let me know if, you, if you're interested in one because we got, we'll just bring a basket around. You can pick your own so no one else will have touched it. And Anyone? Okay, you everybody got So we're going to share in this, um, this ceremony that talks about this unity that we have with Christ and with the Father. So uh, remember they were, in the, um, they were in the upper room and Jesus is teaching them and talking with them and, and he starts telling them about how he's going to die. And he's like, hey, this, um, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and it's going to be ugly, and, but it's for you. And so as he's breaking the bread, going through the Passover ceremony, he breaks the bread, and he, and he kind of changes everything around to this new idea. He says, he says, this represents, he says, this is, this is, this is my body broken for you. Now, he's speaking metaphorically, obviously, but this is my body broken for you. What he's saying is, I'm going to be broken so that you don't have to be broken. They're going to break me, and they don't have to break you. And he says, so take it and eat. So if you'll peel that first little clear thing off the top, if you haven't done it, be careful because it'll just go flying if you're, if you're spastic like I am sometimes. And he took this, and, he, and he, as, as he handed it to him, he said, this is my body broken for you. So let's, let's do that together. Hey, this, this represents Jesus' body broken for you, broken for me, giving us his identity. Let's take and eat. It's like a creamer cup. If you'll just peel that back, you get your little juice cup there. And he took the cup, which is part of the normal ceremony at that time, and he turned it around too, and he said, yeah, this cup, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be my blood. It's going to be shed for you. And, and he preceded the whole thing with, hey, and when, when you do this, remember me. Do this so you remember my brokenness, my poured out blood. So let's remember that Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for you. Let's drink. Amen. What a beautiful opportunity. Everyone in here was of the same mind, doing the same thing, Remembering the same Savior all at once. That's unity. That's what God wants. And you know, we, I know when we do communion, it's always, um, it's a little somber. And we're, people are we're serious about it. And it's a serious thing. I, I'm not saying it's not. But I think we can also celebrate. We should be celebrating. We're remembering, we're remembering how we were redeemed from sure damnation. Certain death certain separation. We were, in the, we were in all those loser categories I described. And Jesus came along and said, oh, no, 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 no. I got some victory. Amen. Let's celebrate together.